Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tours from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. Welcome back to Bike Tour Adventures. We are speaking with Vroni, Droni, and Jonas. And after graduating from university, they decided to take some time, go away on an adventure where they would cycle in New Zealand, Australia, and Southeast Asia while also taking some time to work in Australia with a work and travel visa in order to save some money and make ends meet. Throughout their two-year adventure, they decided that they hadn't had enough of it and thought it would be great to fly to China, cycle back to Germany. Having now cycled 27,000 plus kilometers, I had the opportunity to catch up with them so we could talk about their trip, the possibilities that exist for young people with adventurous hearts, video making, and how have they changed over the course of this adventure. If you want to learn more about Vroni, Droni, and Jonas, you can check out their website onionadventure.de or look them up on Instagram and Facebook at Onion Adventures. Vroni, Jonas, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Good to hear you. And of course, Droni as well. Who is Droni? Um, it's our drone. We kind of looked for a handy name for this trip and because Jonas, Joni, and Veronica or the short nickname in German, Froni, is both O and I in the end. So we got to know the idea with the onion, Oni, on adventure. And the drone just fit perfectly in it with becoming Droni. Perfect. I love it. How many dronies have there been? Is, have you guys actually managed to do the whole tour with one drone or have you lost several? Drone, the drone is still the same. Magically, we, we, haven't, we haven't managed to lose it, even though there have been a few close calls. Yeah. Um, with some trees and some cliffs and stuff, but so far so good. That's awesome because yeah, they everybody I talk to tends to go through several drones. <laughs> no, luckily it, it's still the same. Somehow. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Veronica and Jonas, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Yeah, sure. So yeah, we're both turning twenty-eight soon, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, finished university. Both studied business before we started a trip in the beginning of. 2017 and um yeah since then we're on the road kind of more or less and yeah we we haven't been back to germany since but we were lucky uh, having our parents 
Um, both of our parents visit us um, two times so far. Oh wow! Once for Christmas in in Australia, they've they've managed to both come over, and then when we were in Southeast Asia in last summer, um, my parents were here for two weeks, and then Froni's parents were here for two weeks as well, or not here, but they met us where we were, which mm -hmm. was Vietnam for my parents and Malaysia for uh, for Ronnie's parents, and yeah, so. We're still, still enjoying the trip, but now after what is it now? Almost three years or thirty thirty plus months, it's definitely time time to go home and yeah. do something else. While your family visited, did they actually did they cycle with you guys at all, or was it more of a break from the bike? It, it was a break for us off the bikes, so we kind of left our bikes somewhere in hostels or with hosts or something, and. Um, yeah, had some nice holiday with them, which was good. I think it's good to have some breaks yeah. in between such a long trip to not get annoyed by the bicycle. <laughs> That's right. What made you decide to do a bike tour adventure? We we didn't really decide on a on a bike trip in the first place. We mm -hmm. we knew we wanted to to go travel before before we get into like a serious like responsible adult life yeah. after university. Um, and we figured um, uh, Ronnie has been in Australia after after high school for three months before, just for a first working holiday. Um, but she she didn't travel there at the time, so she only worked and didn't have the chance to travel. And said she wanted to go back to Australia. And during my university time, I um, had a social project in Malaysia for three months before, and I really enjoyed Southeast Asia. So. I want to go back to Southeast Asia. Ronnie wants to go back to Australia, and we were thinking, yeah, it's pretty pretty easy to combine. So do Australia and Southeast Asia um, for for a trip, and yeah, that's that's how the destination came to be. And we were thinking, if you're already in the area, um, you should probably do New Zealand as well because it's pretty much far from everywhere in yeah. the world. And if you're already in Australia, we thought it's yeah, it's reasonably easy to go there. So that's how we got to our initial plan of um, traveling in yeah Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. But we we wanted to go just general backpacking um, until we got to the point that we thought we we did some shorter bike trips in in Europe. So we mm -hmm. were in um, Northern Ireland and Ireland for like almost two weeks. We cycled a bit through France and Croatia, but only like like really only a couple of weeks and okay. not that much. And it was more a practical reason that we thought, okay, um, we were um, younger than 25, so renting a car somewhere outside of Germany is pretty expensive. So um, both of our parents did some cycle touring when they were younger. Uh, so we thought, okay, um, why just not take the bike and we're flexible and it's easy, but we never thought about really traveling longer. But then we were like, okay, why why do we want to go backpacking? We we did all our last trips by bicycle. Mm -hmm. Why not do it by bicycle? I think I think the first moment I came up with it and was around Christmas time, and I was like, oh, we should do it by bike. And we were like, we're both like, ha ha, that's a that's a stupid idea. Who would do and, that? <laughs> yeah. And two weeks two weeks later, we we met again because at the time we were studying in different cities, and we were like both like. Actually, I thought about the whole bike thing and like, oh yeah, me too. And sounds pretty good. Yeah, I think we should do it. So, I think that's that, that's how it all, yeah, got to 
got developed. to us. Yeah, that's how it developed. And then in the beginning of 2016, we decided on doing that trip um, with me finishing my studies in July and Ronnie probably finishing close to end of the year. And we're like, okay, now we have a year to plan plan the whole thing and starting our trip in New Zealand and do New Zealand, Australia and finish after cycling through Southeast Asia. And that when you started, it was middle of summer in New Zealand, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but the summer was, um, the, New Zealand skipped the summer that, that year. I remember everybody told us, oh, normally it's really warm at this time of the year, but it was warm enough for us. We were happy with the temperature. Okay. What did you learn during those first three months on the road? I actually think New Zealand was the part where it still kind of felt more like a holiday. You know, it's more like we had the limited time of three months, which mm -hmm. is, of course, more than a normal holiday, like two weeks, but it was still limited. And we had kind of a rough idea where to go, and we kind of pretty much stick to this uh, this idea. And um, so I think it was a good start just because you knew the the language. And, I mean, New Zealand is super – it's amazing to cycle. It's It was definitely one of the most beautiful areas we've been to, but it was more the travel, like, experience itself that we made there. I think the real freedom and and – what comes with a longer trip uh, really started in Australia. Okay. And uh, what did you like most about New Zealand? I mean, we've, we've spent two months um, in the, uh, on the South Island and one month uh, on the North Island. And I think that if you're, if you're into, into nature and hiking and just the outdoors, then definitely South Island mm -hmm. is just, it's just stunning. It's, you have snow-topped mountains, you have glaciers, you have rainforest, you have beaches. And that's that's what makes uh, or what made New Zealand for us so crazy amazing is that all those different kinds of landscape you have in such a short distance. Yeah. So even traveling by bicycle, kind of you sometimes when you're in the mountains and you go downhill, of course you're faster, but in a distance of 100 kilometers or something, 150 kilometers, you can pass three different kinds of, of, of scenery, which is so crazy when you think of other parts in the world. Like most countries have one type of style, which, which is amazing probably too, but just this diversity is crazy. Yeah, I used to always say to people like New Zealand feels a lot like Canada, except it's just a condensed micro-sized version of it yeah. because Canada is so huge. And to, yeah. to see the mountains and all the way down, like it's, you got to travel a lot to see all the different things, but New Zealand had everything yeah. and it was, it was really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, we were also told before, no, New Zealand is so far away. You don't have to go there. Just go to Ireland or Scotland. There you see the same scenery. And you have the Alps for the mountains and everything. You have everything that is in New Zealand you can find in Europe, but mm -hmm. you can't find it all in one place. Like you have to be in several different countries in Europe to see all the different features that you can have very condensed in close proximity in in a shorter trip in New Zealand. Oh, well said. What kind of bikes are you riding? They are, um, it's a small German manufacturer called Norvit, but uh, I think it's a very classic steel, steel touring bike, mm -hmm. uh, close to a long haul trucker, um, just geometry wise and weight wise, it's a 20 kilo bike and um, we decided to um, to get a roll of speed hub. Nice. Thinking about it before, if it's a good idea or not, and you have less of a maintenance problem, hopefully, and 
you don't have to replace any parts for a long time, but you have a higher higher initial cost of of investment to get it. Yeah. But so far we are very happy with it. The bikes have been perfect. Um, we've been very happy with the role of Speed Hub. We didn't have a, like a single problem with it. Um, just the only thing you have to do is every 5,000 kilometers you have to change the oil that's in the hub. But everything else has been perfect. And we've met quite a few people on the road and they were like, oh, yeah, and I was riding there in the middle of nowhere and my derailleur broke. And you're like, okay, perfect. What do you do without a derailleur? You ride a single speed yeah. with full with full luggage and gear on it. Like that That's a pain. And people are like, oh, yeah, and this and that, and then finding new proper sprockets and new keychain. All that kind of stuff made us be even happier with like a carefree solution that we have with the with the roll of speed up. I'm envious. Um, I would love to get a roll off. Yeah, they seem to be amazing. I heard there was actually a Norwegian company that recently built a speed hub of their own, and it's um, supposed to be a little bit cheaper than the roll off. But then again, you don't you don't know about the reliability issues, right? So it's so new, it, yeah, it might be true. worth looking into. But the roll offs are, you know, they they have a good history and. I talked to people yeah. that have had one for 15 years and they're like, yeah, they never stop working. They just, as long as you change yeah. the oil, it's like a Volkswagen, you know, go, Germ- yeah, go Germany. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> even, we even heard stories from, from a guy we met on the road and he was, he had done 200,000 kilometers over the last 12 years. Wow. And he, he had some kind of problem in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in Laos or something, Southeast Asia. And when he contacted Roloff, they're like, okay, what's the closest service partner? And that was in in Bangkok. So they paid for his his overnight bus, which was like thirty hours from somewhere in Laos to Bangkok with his with his rear wheel. And they drove him there, paid for the main like paid for the service, had it fixed and then paid for his bus, take it back where the rest of his bike was. So Wow. I think yeah, so it's not only like the reliability, but you pay for the service that you get. If you like, there's they're very lenient. If they because apparently if if you give your roll off to the service and they open it up, they can tell whether you do your your oil changes every five thousand or not. Oh, okay. Because then there's no rust and all these kind of things, and you don't put it into like submerge it in salt water and all these crazy things. If you take good care of it and do your service, they they will do your service for free if anything goes wrong. So. That also, that's also something you pay for that you don't really get with any any other piece of gear. I think. True, I think um, I was at uh, I was I was driving down the road here in Ottawa, Canada, recently, and uh, there was a guy. He had a yard sale, and he was selling all kinds of bike stuff. And I just happened to stop, and he had this old German-made two-speed rear hub that. Um, it can only work without, there's no cassettes or anything. You can't put a cassette. So it's just a two-speed hub, but they're about 100 years old. I think he said wow. it was from like 1920 or 1930 or something. And he says he takes them apart and cleans them up and stuff, puts them back together. He says they work so well. And I was like, holy crap, that's old, man. <laughs> that's crazy, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, if you've, if you've ever, never done it, um, go to the Roloff page and they have, um, they call it an explosion diagram. So they take the hub and split it open and push all the parts out and you see all the different parts and you can go through different gears mm-hmm. and it's just a 
it's a planetary system, so it's like it, it feels like like seven hundred little gears in one, mm-hmm. and depending on how you shift the gears, different parts of these gears engage and disengage. It just, if you look at it, it just feels like magic. I don't know. It's it makes you wonder what what kind of drugs was the guy doing when he invented that? Like, how did <laughs> yeah, he figure like, that out? <laughs> how do you come up with that? I mean, it is genius, and I guess it's a it's a bit of a cliche for German engineering. But I mean, you pay. We figured out we, you pay for quality. That's what mm-hmm. we really found, and we're very very happy with the choice we made. So with regards to your equipment on your bikes, um, other than the Rohoff Hub, what kind of bags are you using or what's your setup like? Um, we are using a V-Day bag, so we're not, we're not um, mm-hmm. using the one big brand that's out there, but we are um, using V-Day bags, which is a German, um, German company that um, produces outdoor gear, bike bags, backpacks, all that kind of stuff. And... We chose that that brand because they um, th- their mission right now is um, being the most sustainable outdoor brand in Europe. Uh-huh. So um, when we looked at what kind of bags we want to get for for the trip, we actually just contacted them and asked them if there's a possibility for some kind of sponsorship or support. And they were like, "Oh yeah, sure, why not?" And then they agreed on actually giving us something like a 35, 40% discount on everything. Fantastic. So, yeah. So we ended up buying um, most of the gear that we needed anyway um, from them. Um, so all our panniers, um, a lot of the, the clothing that we have, um, gloves and headbands and all these little kind of things that you have to get anyway. And you don't think about you know. um, yeah, and I mean, it was easy. We could just, like, shoes, we wear shoes with cleats, so cycling shoes mm-hmm. we got from them and all this kind of stuff. We we could just get all in one place, and, you know, it's it's a company that thinks about sustainability in a way, and at the time there were not really um, many other companies that were that were looking at these, these aspects in, in the way that that company does. So it was a German company, and it was sustainable, and... Yeah, in the end, we were really happy. And so far, all the panniers are like still working. We have some holes, but that's not their fault. That's ours. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, three years takes takes a toll on your gear. And I mean, everything starts coming apart after a while. I mean, it's not made for eternity. And it's like of we course. figured two and a half years is the magic. Is the magic end where start, stuff starts? Whatever we had, we had our ten like the ten zipper started falling apart, and so many other things just started breaking. All the clips on the bag start breaking, but it's just plastic, and they're like yeah. in the sun all the time. So the UV uh, like messes up the plastic, and all these things start breaking. Our Bluetooth speaker, our power bank, everything. After two and a half years. It felt like that was the moment everything you said, okay, time to go, and everything started falling apart. So, so the top yeah. touring tip you could give is plan your tours to be about two and a half years long max, so you don't have to rebuy <laughs> yeah, all your exactly. equipment. Like, <laughs> two, two years, two years, five months, in like twenty nine days or something <laughs> like that, and you'll be fine. And, yeah. Uh, this is a question I should ask everybody, actually. It seems to be a really big debate about shoes with clips or normal shoes. You said that you guys clip in. Yeah, I think, as you say, I think it's a religious question, you know? It's like people are like, oh, yeah, it's perfect. People are like, oh, no, it's not. And 
Actually, we both started with clip-ins because we thought it might be more comfortable over a long time. The interesting thing is we never wrote with clip-ins before we started this trip. So ah. we were just looking around and we are like, oh, yeah, this might be nice for such a long trip. And it is, it is comfortable to a point because you don't have to think about if your feet are in the proper yeah. place on the pedal and you get the extra... Yeah, the extra transfer of of power from your legs because you don't you cannot only push down but you can push forward, right. pull up a bit. But one disadvantage that I found after we've been cycling with the Kiwi guy for six weeks, uh, he was bikepacking and mm-hmm. super minimalist setup. And one thing is you need a second pair of shoes yeah. if you want to go for a hike or something like that. So. I think now, after the time, I would ditch the clip-ins and ride a proper, like, I don't know, a light outdoor shoe, I don't know, some trail running shoes or something on a nice big pedal and have only one pair of shoes rather than carrying another, I don't know, one and a half or one kilo for an extra pair of shoes, and which is like just two pairs of extra shoes is like a yeah. half rear pannier for me that I'm carrying around all the time. So I'm not sure. But Ronnie has a different opinion on that. I I really like it. I like like Jonas. I have never been ridden on with cleats before this trip, and I was really afraid in the beginning that I would fall because everybody says you have to fall with bike once when you click in. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, now it feels super awkward not being clicked in. It's like when you're not wearing your seatbelt or something. <laughs> So I, I like it just like just on bumpy roads or something. I can't slip off the of the pedals mm-hmm. or going uphill. I have more I can concentrate on the pulling rather than on like yeah, the right position on the pedals and stuff and not slipping off and um I, I really like it. But is a disadvantage disadvantage with the with the extra shoes. That's that's definitely something I agree with. Yeah, especially as a guy, because we tend to have bigger feet. So like for me to put a second <laughs> pair of shoes in my bags, it takes up like half of a front pannier. You know, like it's it's huge. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. It's huge. So I think I wouldn't I wouldn't do it again just because it's you get it used in the end. You get used to everything. And I mean, I don't know what these things are called in English, but you can even have like these plastic cages on yep. your on your pedals. I, I think I'd rather get one of those and get a like a nice pair of, of like yeah of good hiking shoes and you only carry one pair of shoes, which is I mean in the end it all adds up. Yeah. And carrying an extra pair of shoes. I, I would I wouldn't do it again. Yeah, I think if I, I didn't have clips, I'm a clip in person too. If I didn't use clips, I would probably get some decent toe clips or toe cages or whatever they call them. Yeah. Even some of the ones they make some that are just a strap that goes across and you stick your foot in, kind of like on a on a on an exercise bicycle. Exactly. So let's talk about Australia. You guys spent um, a while in Australia, I guess, over uh, spread out over the period of two years of work and travel visa, something like that. Uh, we spent. We, we arrived um, in Sydney and we spent a full year. So we had a working holiday visa mm-hmm. and we actually spent the full year. We we left on the last day of our visa, which oh. everybody's like, oh, no, don't do it. If anything like happens, you, you're screwed. And we're like, nah, we'll, we'll stretch it out. And there was even a guy who wanted to question us in the airport when we left about our working holiday visa. He was doing some kind of survey for the government and he was like, Oh yeah, so you spent less than a year in Australia? Like, no, one year. It's like exactly to the date, and the 16th and the 16th, or, or the 15th, or something. Just 
the maximum. And he's like, no, I can't. I can't trust you. Then I can only do less than one year. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. And did you guys bike around in Australia during that year, or did you only work and make money? No, we we basically first idea was to only work like for a couple of weeks because. When I, I was in Australia after high school, I worked there in the beginning and um, yeah, I still had the contact and I liked it there. So it was a cattle station where we easily could go back to, to work again and okay. save some money. Yeah, so the plan was that the, the station is um, like on the East Coast. So we cycled up from Sydney to that place. And instead of staying a couple of weeks, we ended up staying for three months because we liked it so much. Oh, wow. But... Um, from there on, we, we kept cycling after those three months, but because that was actually the, the first time we had a mindset change probably because the first idea was really to cycle everything, and because we worked for longer, we would not have m possibly made it in time to get up to Darwin through the outback um, to cycle there um, before the wet season starts. And right. I mean, in, in Darwin, you, you really can't cycle in the wet season. Everything is flooded, and it's not possible. So we made the decision to to get a car to drive through the outback, not to cycle, and be in Darwin up there, then um, rather cycle in the Darwin region and down the west coast. So we we did the Gibb River Road then and mm -hmm. went down to Perth and even even further to this you know, I think most southern point there. And then we first wanted to fly to Southeast Asia from Perth, but we <laughs> changed our minds again and flew from Perth to Adelaide to cycle the Great Ocean Road and especially get to Tasmania as we heard so many amazing stories mm -hmm. of cycling there. And we really loved it too because it's, again, more like New Zealand than Australia and New okay. Zealand was amazing. So it was great. And in the end, we had one month left and went back to the cattle station uh, for the last month before we had over to um, Indonesia. Oh, Okay. Yeah, you have a little bit of an Australian twang when you speak English. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we heard that. We we spent too much time there, I guess. <laughs> um, so, did you buy the car that you traveled with, or did you just uh, rent it, or how did that work? Actually, we were we were it, the situation was was a very was a very interesting one. The the station that we worked on was the two the two owners of the station and mm -hmm. the two of us, and um, just after I think after like. Two months when we were kind of getting ready to leave, um, there was an accident on the on the farm when we had some some of the cattle in the in the yards there, mm -hmm. and one of the cows broke through a gate and trampled the owner of the farm, and she had like six broken ribs and like they had to take her spleen out and like wow. collapsed lung and all that kind of stuff. So. There was there was a really bad time for them. So while she was in the hospital for like three or four weeks, um, her husband wanted to be in the hospital with her. So in the end, for the for that time, we were kind of running the the daily business on the farm there. Okay. Uh, even though we were thinking about already leaving at that time, but we knew they weren't like it was a really difficult situation for them. So we like yeah, of course we're gonna stay. We because for them, it, it with them it was more like working with friends and family rather yeah. than um, like an employer-employee relationship. So when they were in trouble, we were like, yeah, of course we're staying. And then when she came back out of hospital, we stayed for another two weeks to help them out. And they had an old car like standing around on the property, and 
because we ended up staying so much longer, so much time that we would have needed to cover the distance on the bicycle, um, we just asked them, like, is, is that car actually operational? Could we just drive that somewhere and, like, you know, give it somebody for a couple of bucks? And they're like, no, you can't drive that. But you want a car? We're like, I don't know. It was, it was just an idea. And they're like, you were so good to us, we'll buy you a car. So, what? Seriously? Wow. Yeah, they, they ended up they ended up buying that car for us, which was a 1989 Nissan Patrol, mm-hmm. um, which is which was like the perfect Australian experience riding around the outback in an old or oldish. Um, I mean, the car's older than we are, mm-hmm. and like in an old four wheel drive car, it was it was it was just one of these things that you know you you do good things and good things happen to you. So yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a the Nissan Patrol too is kind of like a Jeep type car, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the car that you imagine to drive through the outback in Australia. It was really it was really cool. Yeah. Awesome. And then when you guys came back at the end, you gave it back to them or what did you do? Uh we we, we sold it in Darwin actually. Oh, okay. It was super super cool cuz we went to this Facebook group group and within one day we really sold it. So it was super easy. For pretty much the same that that it was bought for so and we were like oh yeah we we were like okay yeah and it was it was cool because we were like a bit afraid that we'd be like comfortable in the car staying in the car because mm-hmm. like australia is a very big place with like especially in, in the western part um the distances are just insane between towns and we were a bit afraid that we'd be too comfortable in the car and just stay in the car leave our bikes on the roof and just drive. But we were very happy to sell it in Darwin and then keep on cycling from there to per, like to, um, to Broome and then down the West Coast. How was your experience on the Gibb River Road? Um, it was amazing, actually. We In the beginning, we decided not to do it because we thought it's not enjo- enjoyable and it won't be cool and la, la, la. And in the end, we decided... Everybody, all the blogs that you find online, so we did some research, they all say, oh, yeah, you can do it. And it was just the end of the time slot where you can do it. Okay. So we were just in time. And um, we, it was it was tough, I would say. Like, I think our average speed during the day was, like, 10 kilometers an or hour. Or maybe 12. Or maybe 12, yeah, a bit more probably than 10, but... Compared to what you can do if it's flat, it yeah. was super slow. Actually, the road is flat, but just the road condition is just atrocious. <laughs> it's it's corrugated, so it's just very bumpy or very sandy, or it's it's not a fun like on a fully loaded touring bike. It's a bit of a pain, but it, it's still. It was it yeah. was definitely a challenge and definitely a hard part. But I mean, that's definitely something we learned. The hardest roads are. In that moment, the one that you kind of hate, but in the end, they're the best experiences. Mm-hmm. So the people <clears throat> along the river road, they all have, in, even in their cars, I mean, they all know um, what it's like to be out there to carry all your stuff. So we had a sign in the back of the bicycle saying water welcome. So we didn't have, wouldn't have to do any detours to get some more water or That's filter water. Brilliant from the idea. Yeah. So we, we saw that the other cyclists did that. So we did that. And we didn't want to put on water needed 
we said we put water welcome on it and we then just keep filling up, topping up the water so nobody has to give us like 10 liters, but every now and then like one or two liters. And we actually had so many people stopping. We had so many amazing conversations in the evening. We got invited to drinks and food and we got during the day, we got ice cream and it was so amazing. So this just made this whole experience there even more special. Did you guys work anywhere else or was just uh, just at that one cattle ranch? It was just at one cattle station. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, does it pay well to work that kind of work in Australia or what do you guys um, or do you know what pays really well or what people that are thinking to do a work and travel should look for? I think in general, Australia pays really well. I mean, Australia is itself, it's an expensive country. So if you live there and you have to pay for your food and for your rent and for a car or something, and then you work, then it's like in every other country, I would say, because the food and the rent is expensive, and then it doesn't matter that you earn more. But there are many places. So we living on this cattle station, earning really the minimum that you can earn in Australia, but not spending any money for food or rent. It was just savings. Oh. Then it's an amazing amount. Yeah, and you so, say three months, it's good. Yeah, so in the end, so we worked there three months, in the end, one more month, and actually after cycling Southeast Asia for the next winter, we came back to Australia because it was too early to keep going through Southeast Asia. Okay. So in total, we worked there for seven months, and this money that we earned there is going to pay for the whole trip, three years of traveling, including seven months of working. Oh, wow. Leaving Australia, you guys flew to, was it Bali that you flew to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Bali is the easiest connection. First, we really wanted to take a boat, and we really looked it up. And I think if you're looking for it at the right time of the year, I think it's August or something like it, then you have the right winds and the right weather conditions to catch a boat. But A sailing boat. Yeah, a sailing boat. Um, but we were too early, so we would have loved to do that. But so, yeah, we had to fly to Bali. Okay. And how was it when you got into Southeast Asia? I mean, just the, the difference. Um, I guess Jonas had been there previously. Yeah, he was, exactly. He had a Southeast Asian experience before. Uh, for me, I think I was uh, a bit shocked in the beginning. I remember the first evening we, we we've arrived, I think, at 2 a.m. or something, because, of course, it's the cheapest flight with the, with the most annoying time. So um, we arrived in, in Denpasar, mm-hmm. At, I think 2 a.m. and we had a cheap hotel booked close to the airport. But you just get out of the airport and even at 2 a.m. it's still like 26 degrees and like 100% humidity, yeah. and it smacks you in the face and you're like, oh my god. And then there's like 700 people like, oh, I need a taxi, taxi, tourist, tourist. And, oh, so oh, annoying, you, isn't it? <laughs> you have to haggle with everybody, and it's it, it was. You're, you're kind of annoyed already, and then you have to go through all of this. And we managed to get it all done, and we find somebody who could put the bikes in, actually still in the boxes, on, on the car and drive us to the hotel. And then we arrived at the hotel, and Ronnie had it booked before, and he said, oh, yeah, it's like it's like 10 bucks, and it looks super awesome. But, yeah, the pictures ended up looking more amazing than the facilities were. Mm-hmm. So, um I was kind of used to what accommodation in Southeast Asia is like. It might look nice online, but it might not be when we're there. And 
in the end, looking back to of the whole like Southeast Asian experience, this was a completely fine room. It had everything you needed. It had an AC, a bed, a bathroom directly there. It was all clean, so it was all perfectly fine. It was, but it was in the end, it was just a different standard. Yeah. And so it just. Kept- Ronnie was a bit stressed. <laughs> I mean, we were stressed at night, like arriving there at like three thirty in the morning, and then. The room is like you have a window, but it is like 20 centimeters to like the wall to the neighbors. So mm-hmm. technically you have a window. And then there's no toilet paper, but they use these like, yeah, I don't I, I don't even know what you call it, these. Shower things. You had the, the bucket, the pail of water in the bucket, right? No, like not layout. even that. Even no? the better version, which is like a little shower head oh, the to hose. clean yourself. I yeah. so I always call it the ass hose, but some of my friends call it a bum gun. So yeah, we had, we had an Aussie guy, and he said it's the bum gun. I think that's a good name for yeah. it. Um, but I'm not sure if everybody who listens that knows what the bum gun is. So um, let's call it the bum gun. And if you've never used it, it's a very weird thing to do if you use like to the toilet with toilet paper, and then it's three in the morning and you're just pissed off because everything's shit. And um, you're tired, and there are so many people, and then it's hot. It was just all at the. It was a bit of a culture shock, I would yeah. say. So yeah, we. As you were saying, for people that don't know, the bum gun is it's a hose that has is connected to the water supply for the toilet, and you use it to yeah. spray your butt clean. Um, but yeah. you, uh, when I use it, I like to use it in conjunction with toilet paper, but. In a lot of toilets around Malaysia and Indonesia, they don't have toilet paper. So if you don't have your own, you're kind of in a little conundrum. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the first evening, you definitely don't have any toilet exactly. paper with you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. From, from Bali, did you cycle to Jakarta and then boat over towards Singapore? Or did you guys go all the way up to Sumatra? And No, we, we went the other way. We went oh. the very, uh, very different way. We went east. Really? Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah. So we, we the first island were the Prehension Islands where we had kind of a few days just on one of those little paradise islands. And then we went over Lombok where we mm-hmm. where there's a really cool volcano that you can climb. So we did that. Mount Rinjani it's called. So it's I think it's the second highest mountain in Indonesia. I think a year or later. Yeah. It was it was beautiful. And I think after that was there is Sumbawa. And that really, there's the whole, on the whole trip, really going over this island, we didn't meet any other tourists. Ah. So it's really the opposite of Bali. And there's basically one road over the, over the whole island where all the little villages and houses are. And um, (laughs) that's it. (laughs) But it was amazing, just cultural. Interestingly, um, very Christian island. So you come from, you come from Bali, which is um, mainly... Hindu, yeah, mm-hmm. and then you go to Lombok, which is mainly Muslim, and then you go to Zimbabwe, where you have a lot of Christians, and you have churches everywhere and everything, so it's it's very interesting, um, especially as you get further, fur- further and further away from tourism. Did you guys go to the Komodo Islands when you were near Zimbabwe or just after? Is yeah, it Flores, we- yeah? Yeah, exactly. We kept going from Sumbawa and took the ferry over to, to Flores and um, we stayed in Labuan Bajo for a couple of days and we also took the took the trip to the Komodos and it, yeah, 
definitely, definitely cool time. Yeah. We were very lucky. Um, there was um, the mating season of the manta rays, so okay. you could go oh, nice. snorkeling with the mantas, and you're just diving or snorkeling, and you have like 20 manta rays, um, just dancing, in, in, dancing around you. It was amazing. Swimming around each other in circles, and just there, and then I mean, they're big bastards, eh? They, they're like, they're like five meters. Like, are they dangerous at like, all? Like stingrays or no? No, no, no. They're they're like they're pretty much bottom feeders, more or less. Like okay. they they're like whales. They they filter stuff and every little fish that's unfortunate, but they they do nothing. They they don't care about you. Okay. Um, but they're just they're just massive. Like you think like you see if you're somewhere you see like a stingray. Oh yeah, that's cool. And then you see a manta ray and it's like five meters wide. I mean. A normal car is like is like four meters long. Right. If you think about it that way, and that thing just floats around the water, and it's like bigger than a car is long. That's amazing. Um, did you guys get video of this with your? You have a Xiaomi, right? The action yeah, camera. Yeah, yeah. We I think there is video of it, and actually, you can even see it from the drone. Like, we have video from the drone with the boat, like driving over the area where the mantas are and oh, you can wow. see the dark spots of the mantas under the boat. Oh, that's awesome. Cause you guys have been down into the parts of Indonesia that I have not yet gone. Um, I've been as far as Lombok and, Oh, I was yeah. going to yeah. say, Vroni, it's not the Prentian islands. Prentian islands are near Kota Baru, Kelantan, Malaysia. It's the, oh, Gi- yeah, right. the Gili islands. Yeah. The yeah. Gili islands. Oh yeah, that's true. So that's I've been right, there yeah. and I've been to Lombok, but I've, I've never gone further east than that. So that's on my, my bucket list. Yeah. So what the the next interesting thing after Flores and the Komodo National Park is actually if you go further to Timor and mm-hmm. Timor Leste. So we just we weren't also sure if we wanted to go there, but you heard a lot of nice and amazing things. So I think Timor Leste was definitely also uh, a little bit more of an adventure than other countries. Tell us about that. That's awesome. Uh, it is. Um... You have the island of Timor, so after um, the island of Flores, if you go further east, you get to the island of Timor, and this island is split in half. One mm-hmm. half is Indonesian, the island of Timor, and one half is Timor-Leste as an independent country. Um, the interesting part was there's um, it is yeah very longish island like from the west to the east so it the north south is very is yeah it's not very it's not very wide i think it's like 150 kilometers wide but you have a mountain range in the middle so you can go either along the north shore or the south shore okay and the north shore is the main the main highway the main road over the island which gets you to um to Dili, which is the capital of Timor-Leste, which is on the North Shore. And we had a look and we thought, oh, yeah, why don't we go along the South Shore? And, yeah, that turned out to be quite a bit of an adventure. Um, When we got to the border uh, of Indonesia and Timor-Leste, it was no problem crossing. It was all fine. It, it, It felt like we were the first tourists they've ever seen crossing that border because they were like, what are you doing here? And we're like, yeah, we're cycling it, but why? And they they call us into the office with like their, I don't know, with their officer, like the main guy in the border in Timor Leste. He's like, why are you here? And we're like, yeah, we heard it's nice. And they're like, 
okay, have fun. And you come from a perfectly tarmac sealed road in Indonesia, you get to the border. Once you leave the border uh, checkpoint, it's a horrible gravel road, like big river pebbles and like not a nice road. And you just go from what you think is like a third world country to something that would be like a fourth world country compared to that. Everything like goes down a notch. Apparently, Timor-Leste is the poorest country in Asia. And you can really tell like the infrastructure is, is very minimal. Every second village has like, like a, a UN office and like all the humanitarian aid and Oxfam and all these kind mm-hmm. of things. And everywhere you see signs where they build um, wells and roads and all the European money, Americans, everywhere you see that there's so much developmental aid going on which we haven't seen any of in Indonesia, for example. Oh, okay. It's funny, when I look at the, I'm looking at Google Maps right now as you speak, and mm-hmm. when you look at Timor-Leste, all the roads look like they're bigger roads than in East Timor, or sorry, than in the Indonesian Timor, because Indonesian Timor just doesn't show the roads. It looks like these little, right. it looks like a, it would look to me like a dirt road, and the other ones look in Timor-Leste look like they're highways. It's they, not. they were building a highway when we were there, okay. so maybe yeah. that's finished. Maybe there's a highway now, but at the time on the south coast, mm-hmm. yeah, mo- most of that was was quite quite bad. Okay. Yeah. Yes, the the road conditions weren't the most enjoyable on Timor Leste. That's that's sure. That's for sure. But it was still the the people there. Uh, it's it's amazing how how the lifestyle is like. Compared to Southeast Asia, for example, we, we found it pretty hard to, to go do a lot of camping because everything is just so crowded. And suddenly in Timor-Leste, we camped like there was the longest period without any hostels or hotels. Mm-hmm. So it was like, I think, 10 days that we only camped in amazing spots, had campfires, washed everything in the rivers. Um, and, you know, you buy your, your veggies whilst when you stop, one of the cyclists that is carrying fresh um, tomatoes and tempeh or something. That's how you buy your stuff. And um, the thing is, that it, we would have wanted to go to a hostel or something, but there was just nothing there. There's yeah. just there's just no tourist infrastructure. Like I think there's Dili and there's like one little area on the north where they have like a bit of a beach tourism going, okay. where more and more people start going. But on the south coast. There was just nothing there, and then in one town, they they had some guest houses which were identical to the ones in Indonesia. And in Indonesia, you paid like six, seven, eight, maybe if it was expensive, ten US dollars. And then in Timor Leste, they were like, "How much is it?" They're like, "Oh yes, thirty dollars," because they used the US dollar as their official uh, currency. Kind of like Cambodia. So we figured yeah, everything's more expensive there, and we're like, "Yeah, for that very basic." room i'm not going to be paying 30 us dollars so i guess we'll be camping here yeah um did you have any issues like safety issues at all because i've heard that it can be quite dangerous a little bit um maybe it's overblown maybe it's uh um you mean in timor-leste in either east uh yeah timor uh, east timor yeah timor-leste or indonesia yeah um the the only issue we had on the whole trip actually did happen in Timor-Leste and it was usually in the evenings when we were looking for a camp spot we tried to find something close to the river that you can have a bit of a swim 
Um, and that one evening when we were getting closer to Dili, actually on the north coast, when we were still two days of cycling away, um, it was pretty much a normal evening. We found a river. We pitched our tent somewhere along the banks, and then the local kids came over, and we had a bit of a, yeah, they gave us some mango. So it was actually a really nice afternoon. And then in the evening when it was already like, I think it was 10.30 already, and for some reason we were still talking and still being up. Usually we had sleep asleep at that time, but we were still up and talking. And Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag-making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Then we heard something outside of the tent, and especially there, we, we couldn't be bothered to take all the panniers off the mm-hmm. bikes all the time and put them in the tent, and then I looked out, and everything I could see was a young boy, maybe eight years old, who ran away from the bikes from one of the panniers, and one of the panniers was open. Uh. So actually, one of those kids was at, what was it, my front left pannier, which is our cooking gear. Um, so yeah, they they took something out of that pannier, which, which was nothing valuable, like especially valuable, it was uh, some of our utensils, like our cooking knife. We have some of these little um, MSR, I think it's MSR cooking utensils that fold in half. It's oh, like yeah. a like a little spatula and like yeah, like a little what is it ladle kind of thing that it's nice for camping. And I looked into the bag and that stuff was gone. So. Um, we ran out into dark, shouted them that they give it back, and I think at some point they realized that whatever they took was not really valuable. And yeah, then at some point, like, yeah, we we walked into like where we where we thought they were because that's where the little kid ran to, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, we we got some of our stuff back in the end because they figured out it was not. Um, not valuable to them. They they drank our chocolate milk that we had for our cereal, so that was a bit sad. And yeah, after that we we basically decided, okay, we're not going to be staying here. We're not going to be sleeping well. So we packed up and yeah, pretty much left. And at the time we were about to leave, um, the kids even came back with an adult, and the adult was carrying a machete. And we're like, okay, I think it's time to get out of here. So. We cycled off and cycled for another like 15, 20k and pitched our tent. 
somewhere that we thought we could pitch it, and in the morning we found out we were on top of a hill, and it turned out to be one of the most beautiful camp spots we had in Southeast Asia. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And from uh, from East Timor, did you guys go to Sulawesi, or did you where'd you go from there? No, we, we, we ended there, and oh, that was the from end. Dili, we, um, we went, flew back to Bali, mm-hmm. and we were... Um, yeah, we were meeting my best friend and his girlfriend in Bali. They were on a backpacking trip through Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And we managed to organize that we meet up in Bali. So we ended up traveling through Bali for two weeks. and Without the bicycle. Without the bikes. Yeah. We left our bikes in, in Denpasar. And when we already knew we would meet them. So when we were in Bali first, we didn't look at anything there. We just cycled from there towards the Gillies and Lombok and yeah so had a bit of a holiday from cycling oh, there. Okay, nice. yeah. but eventually we kind of cycled over Java to Jakarta and from there we got to Kuala Lumpur then okay did you fly or you took the the ferry I guess you flew right yeah, yeah we, we flew. flew yeah you flew it's good because the ferry takes a long time and sometimes it only goes once a week I think in, to Singapore or to uh, Bandung awesome yeah um yeah, we, we were planning on taking boats and stuff, but then it didn't really come together. I, I have a I have a good friend who lives in Jakarta, and he was um, coming back from university over his summer break, and so we wanted to meet him there. So that was in the beginning of July, and then we knew my parents wanted to visit us in Vietnam at some point, so we would have to get from there, like from Malaysia to Vietnam, so we ended up taking a plane instead of the boat, which would have been the more ecological okay. option, I guess. But I yeah. take it you guys went. Southeast Asia is so cheap. Mm-hmm. I take it, I take it you did go to Prentian Islands, yeah. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah. How was it? Uh, it was amazing. That's actually the place where we met my parents, and we went diving uh-huh. there. So um, it was it was really cool. Did you stay on the small island or the big island? Uh, the big island. The big island, yeah? I think, yeah, I, I'm, think, I'm, I think yeah. it's the big island. Yeah, I think so, probably, yeah. Oh, wait. There's the sm- the party oh, island, and then there's the one where all the big parties are, and then there's the other island, the big island. No, then we were on the small island. We were not on the party island, that's for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, I used to live I used to live in Kotabaru, Kelantan, so about an hour from the, the ferry that would go there. So I spent a oh, lot, of, lot of weekends in the Frentians. Yeah, yeah I oh, I can imagine. That's great. It's better. So let's jump forward just uh, as a means of saving some time because I, I, I've talked, so many people have gone to Southeast Asia. I think it's everybody really knows about it, but I really enjoyed uh, the time we spent on Indonesia because not yeah. as many people go to Indonesia. So why did you decide to start cycling back to Germany from China? Like we said in the beginning, the plan was to fly back home from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And pretty early, actually, in New Zealand, um, staying with so many warm showers hosts, we heard so many amazing stories about Central Asia cycling there. And because we figured out we spent less money than we thought, worked a bit longer in Australia, we can we, we have the time, we can cycle back. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely wanted to go through Central Asia. And we, we had the two options, obviously, to go through... Um, we, we thought about going either through India or through China. Okay. And eventually, we it just kind of, 
I don't know, we heard more bad things about cycling in India or that it's more difficult than in other countries and that we decided not to cycle through India and maybe go back there for backpacking or something. But we just have so much stuff that it's so hard to keep an eye on, on everything yeah. that we decided we will try to, to get the visa to China. And that was basically the reason why we flew into China because – or we flew to Hong Kong because we didn't have a visa yet and we heard the easiest place to get a visa is Hong Kong. Oh, so we thought, okay, okay. I mean, we don't have a visa yet. We haven't organized anything. So we just go to Hong Kong and do all the visa applications there and it worked out well. And so we could start cycling from there. Okay. And how long was your visa for? Uh, we actually got really lucky and we got a 60 days um, visa single entry. single entry so we could have even extended it for another 60 days but we kind of had it timed with meeting other friends in Kyrgyzstan and cycling the Pamir Highway so um, yeah but it was handy because we never had to extend the visa okay. usually usually the, the standard is you get a 30 day yeah. tourist visa and you can extend it for another 30 um, I think we were just lucky when we applied because we didn't go through an agency. We went with the normal, like the visa, what is it called, the Chinese visa agency or something like that. And just the one person um, going through our application was like, because we put in, yeah, what's your job? We're like, yeah, we didn't want to put unemployed, but because that's what we basically are. We want. We just thought maybe travel blogger is a better thing to put. And she was very excited about us about us being travel bloggers and oh, nice. the, the itinerary we we provided because to get the Chinese visa you need all those hotel bookings and all these kind of things which we just like we, we basically just had a fake itinerary we yeah. just booked the stuff on booking.com print the booking um, confirmation and then um, cancel the booking um, so we had that fake itinerary which was for 60 days in China and she was like, oh, yeah, you want to stay for 60 days? We're like, yeah, we'll do 30 days. And then she's like, oh, yeah, maybe we can get you a 60-day visa. That's awesome. And we're like, oh, okay, I guess. And after we applied, we talked to our one shower. So she's like, yeah, I'm here for 10 years, and nobody ever got a 60-day visa. So I think you'll get a 30-day, and that'll be fine. We're like, okay, that's still cool. We ended up getting a 60-day somehow, even though we only paid for a 30-day visa. So I don't know how that happened. We're like, okay, when they gave it to us, we're like, we're not going to say anything. We're just going to leave. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that would work again for anybody who wants to do to try that as well. But so they told us we should put, there's a notice um, place or something. That extra information. Extra like information that. or something. And they told us to put there. Um, because we're travel bloggers, we would like to experience China for 60 days. So that was the only sentence they told us to put there. And I don't know if that was the um, one that gave us the 60 days or if it was not. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a you travel tip for everybody. Yeah. Anybody trying to go to China, just, um, it's, it's also, I've talked to lots of people. They make the fake itinerary, you know, bookings.com and then just cancel everything. And yeah, it's pretty standard. Yeah. What were some of the things you loved and hated in China? Oh, that, that's a good point because I think China was a place with the most things that we loved and hate, <laughs> hated. <laughs> yeah, I think the traffic was the worst. Yeah, like even Southeast Asian traffic is is madness, but it has some kind of logic to it, and people look at stuff. But apparently, in China, the rule is if you're in front, you have priority. So even people merging onto the highway, 
they don't even look yeah. into the mirrors or anything. They just turn. So that was a bit crazy because people in their huge cars, they just don't care about cyclists. They just go wherever, and you are the person who has to look out for everything. But on the other hand, I mean, culturally and the food and the nature, we were in eastern Tibet um, in uh, Yunnan province and stuff like that. These areas were definitely really, really amazing. Yeah. I think, I mean, the communication was definitely the hardest there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's probably an experience that everybody shared shares that who wasn't in, in China before. You somehow have the feeling that in any other country, even though you don't speak the same language, you kind of can make yourself understand or this other person can talk to you via body language or something and Chinese people just don't do that and they don't understand that somebody doesn't speak Chinese and um, they just have another feeling for for yeah contacting other people so in the weirdest moments or while sweating and climbing up the steepest parts of hills they would ask you to stop to take a selfie for example so that was sometimes a little bit annoying and you guys went pretty, you went into the Uyghur region, right? Like near Urumqi or Urumqi? Yeah, but we only, we only passed through. We heard, we heard about the issues there. And so we actually took a train into, into Urumqi. And so we were in town for pretty much two days and had a bit of a look around. And it was a very interesting experience, even though Urumqi is not even the, the craziest place in, in that respect. Um, but yeah, we we didn't really have enough time to um, to yeah. cycle mm -hmm. in uh, in the area, so we only took the yeah we took a bus to the border into into Kazakhstan. Okay, I was gonna say you weren't there long enough to get yourselves arrested, yeah? <laughs> no, we haven't <laughs> no. been arrested. I <laughs> think we lost our driver's license somewhere because in all these in all these like police checkpoints, they want to see all your paperwork. And I think at some point we had our driver's licenses in our like immunization kind of thingies from the doctors in one place and we lost all of that. But yeah, how, ha haven't been arrested. How many <laughs> checkpoints are there? Oh, there are many. I yeah, don't know. Every 50 kilometers. Oh, yeah? yeah? At least. Wow. At least. And they always, they kind of don't save your data. So every every checkpoint puts in your data again and they're taking a photo and they have to go through everything again. And why are you even here and blah? And it's it's really annoying at some point. That's that's amazing. Like every because China is just so big. So like when you're going through that western parts of Tibet or um, or the provinces around it, that's a huge amount of checkpoints. Yeah, yeah. Wild. Um, yeah. How is uh, the Pamir Highways or the Pamir Highway? I should say. It was definitely also one of our most challenging parts of the trip, but as I already said, also one of the most amazing and, yeah, probably <laughs> intense moments or times. Um, I think we the original plan of like basically cycling the with a fully loaded um, yeah touring bike is to take the the main road or one of mm -hmm. the like better better roads probably but because we met this kiwi guy on his uh, with this like really small packed bike he wanted to go the most challenging road which was the batang valley and because we got along so well we said oh why not take the ba batang valley with him and so we did that and um <laughs> 
It was an amazing scenery. For the first two days, we didn't see a person, okay. and the villages were amazing. And still, in every single village, there's an English teacher, so you can pretty good communicate with the people there, actually. And they're so hospitable. They share everything with you. It's so amazing. And not many But the roads are atrocious. Let's say it's like that. It's like... <laughs> The roads. Um, one of my one of my brakes didn't work at the time, so I couldn't ride down one of the hills because it was so steep. I had to push my bike down the hill. Oh wow! Um, because it's that steep, and not only the down and some of the uphill parts. Even though like our our roll off was, um, we had an extra big sprocket on the rear with 19 teeth instead of third, uh, 16. But even there, we couldn't ride up the hills anymore, and once we can't ride anymore, it's that steep that we couldn't even push it on our own. So on the very steep parts, we had to push our bikes with two people at a time. So, and then some of the parts of the roads are just made of like like big rocks or pebbles or big pieces of slate. And it is not fun riding if you're on a fully loaded touring bike. I wouldn't recommend it to, yeah, to do on a full touring. If you're bikepacking, I think it's perfect. Our friend Daniel, he he had a great time. He had a 29-inch like bikepacking bike with a very minimal mm -hmm. load, and he loved it. But for full touring gear, I think it is. You have to you have to also still um, make difference um, between which direction you're going. So we were. We didn't know that, but deciding to do the Bartang was the hard, hard yeah. but we still did it from the right direction because oh, you mostly okay. went downhill. If you come from Dushanbe, you kind of basically go uphill all the time. Basically, once you turn off the actual um, Pamir Highway, you turn into a valley, which is the Bartang Valley, and you ride in the valley for, what is it, something like... 250 something like kilometers, maybe 300, and at some point you get off, like you have to leave the valley and go up to the plateau, um, which is at 4,000 meters, but that climb is the one that I had to push my bike down, and I think it's, uh, it's like 700, 800 meters of elevation okay. over, over something like five, five kilometers or something. Yikes. And yeah, and it's it's just and the road is is very like very fine, not not quite sand, but I'd say very fine gravel. So it's not only very steep, but only a very challenging surface. So if we would have to go up that way, we would have spent a whole day, I think, pushing our bikes two people at a time up that hill. I okay. think. I don't know. There's um there's this another German invention which is fantastic. It's um a buddy of mine, Matt Galat, he has it on his trike and it's called a schlump drive. So it's in your front instead of having a front derailleur, you can um push there's a way you can just hit it with your heel and knock something over and then it drops your chain gearing down by two and a half times. So you can use it your normal pedaling and then when you're gonna climb a crazy mountain you just lower the gearing and it all of a sudden, it just becomes super, super easy. All right. I've so never heard of that. Check it out. The Schlumpf Drive. S A. I don't know how to spell it. Who's? Who am I kidding? <laughs> S C H L U M P H. I think S C H L U M P H. 
Or no, okay. F, whatever. <laughs> I'll put a link. I'll put a link. It's too hard to say. <laughs> it's too hard to spell. Yeah, please. And um, it seemed to work really well for him because he's using it on a trike. And uh, sometimes climbing a hill on a trike is even harder because it's yeah, heavier course. and bigger. And yeah. Did the, uh, did, is it Daniel, the guy from New Zealand? Did he stick with you guys the whole time you were pushing your bikes up the hill? Or did you, did at some point, did he leave? No, he was either helping us or waiting somewhere in the front and the scenery. Oh. <laughs> yeah, basically. Nice, nice guy. Um, yeah. I'd like to jump forward to, oh, did you, actually, one more question. Did you lighten your load and send stuff between the hostels? I know some people told me that you could actually take off some of your clothes and bags and stuff and just send it forward to the hostel in uh, in Dushanbe or vice versa to Osh. No, we have never, we didn't think about that. No. We just took everything we okay. had. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys, when you got to Georgia, you, you did some hiking and... Uh, if you can tell us a bit about that. And then you also went to Ukraine, which was a little bit of an odd uh, direction compared to what most people do. So why don't you tell us why you did those? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so in Georgia, we kind of entered the country coming from Azerbaijan in the, like, I think it's the it's the northern um, um crossing into into the country yeah and um more by accident we figured out that there is a really nice national park um so it's um, the called um lagudeki national park which turned out to be a really amazing one where you can do an amazing three-day hike going up in the mountains ending or passing a lake that it's half in in russia okay and then walking back down and it was that was really amazing and from there, we went um, down to Tbilisi, spent a few days there, and then stayed in the... In the Lesser Caucasus, so along the Armenian and Turkish border, um, because it's off the, off the highway. The highway would have been much less hilly, but it's still the highway, so okay. it's the main, yeah, the main... Yeah, the main traffic in Georgia. And then we went down to Batumi, and there we... We left our bikes there um, to go back to to the mountains to um, Mestia, which is um, apparently the the most famous hike in um, or the most famous multi-day hike in Georgia, which is like a four-day four-day hike from a mountain village called Mestia to a mountain village called Ushguli, which is you don't have to camp. There's um, accommodation and guest houses along the way. So it's very accessible, and yeah, quite a lot of people do it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we did that hike, and even kept going a bit further from from the final final place there. And it's it's actually like it's the most famous one, and it's rather busy. So we definitely enjoyed the the parts where we were more off the beaten track. So there is one alternative alternative route we took in the end to get to Ushguli, and then from Ushguli we also went over the next pass. And there was nobody, and it was amazing. Okay, I know there's a, um, I know that there's a Trans Caucasus hiking trail being developed. I'm not sure if it's open yet or whatnot, or what parts are open and what parts aren't. But Tom Allen, another quite famous bicyclist or bike tour, um, he's there working on developing this hiking trail. All right. All right. Yeah, there, there are so many hiking trails. It's amazing. But for so many, you. You need to be self-sufficient, and I mean, we carry all the stuff that you would need. But we also um, 
have the luxury of carrying a three-person tent, which is just too big to put in our day packs, but which we only have with us, and it's too heavy. So we kind of prepared for a little bit of hiking, but not for a multi-day hiking trip. So um, you probably could rent everything that you needed, but this was just everybody said this main hiking trail is still is is amazing enough kind of to just do that and the scenery is definitely amazing it's just quite a few people there but the alternative routes are definitely enjoyable awesome and uh, why did you go to ukraine and not cycle through turkey and those places yeah, we we were in in georgia it was still quite hot at the time mm -hmm. um which was pretty much in middle of August. And I mean, I think the usual option would be going to Turkey. Um, and Turkey in August is still, is still quite, hot, quite yeah. hot. And um, we were a bit fed up with cycling in the heat, especially after places like Uzbekistan and Azerbaijan, where it was really hot. Um, we were like, yeah, we, we can't really be bothered to be cycling in the heat again. Um, so we found the option to take the ferry straight from Georgia to Ukraine. Yeah, we we, we thought about that before. And I, I think just getting slowly to the end of our trip, we're getting more to, yeah, becoming more the more comfortable cyclists, I guess. So we said Turkey is a nice place, but it's not so far away from Germany anymore. So we... We can go back there really easy to a, to a better time of the year and spend a and bit more enjoy time. Yeah. Exactly, and then it's not so hot and stuff like it. And um, yeah, so we we thought the Ukraine should could be nice, and then um, it was actually really interesting. Um, I mean, we didn't really cycle much in the Ukraine itself, but just um, the area of Moldova and Transnistria, which I had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. um, the the whole um, history there is really interesting as well. I went through Transnistria by train from Ukraine uh, into um, Kishinev or Kishinev. It depends what language you want to yeah. speak. Uh, in <laughs> 2007. And yeah, I had to pay a bribe on the train. They're like, where's your visa? I said, oh, we don't need visas anymore as of January to go to U uh, Moldova. And of course, they say, this is not Moldova. I said, well, according to the rest of the world, it is. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, it was it was super easy. It's a bit weird because you kind of get to the border and then you get the stamp that you leave the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But because Transnistria is still not an official country, they don't give stamps. So you only get like a piece of paper that you put into your passport. Oh, okay. And once you get to the border to Moldova, they which is within Moldova, yeah. officially it's it's within Moldova. So they they're not allowed to put a stamp in your passport there either. We just got another piece of paper with another stamp um, that we had until we crossed over into Romania. Oh, wild. I don't remember how my passport was stamped. I don't think they did this like what happened for me was January 1st, 2007. I think they stopped needing to have visas to go to Moldova. And yeah. I was going through in like, October or September and so there were still being real pains about it, but um, All right, that was pretty you yeah, know we didn't need any visas. That was super easy. Yeah, same so We didn't need any visa, but they also we were always like, okay, where do we get the stamp? They're like, yeah, yeah no stamp, no stamp. We're like, hmm, okay. They're like, oh, it's gonna be fine. We're like, okay, if you say so. And where are you now? 
the place name is a bit hard to pronounce. It's the name is Mirkorea Chuk, which is uh, in Transylvania in Romania. Okay. Yeah, it's it's yeah, pretty much in the middle of Romania, kind of more in the northern part, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's a beautiful beautiful place here. And why don't you tell us what you're doing there? Because I think it's pretty interesting, and even though it's not cycling yeah, related. Um, <laughs> no, we actually we're actually on a break right now. We um a bit off the bikes. Um yeah, because of the the cycling lifestyle of this trip, we kind of um at some point thought about what what's going to happen when we're back home and um we really got into tiny houses. So living a minimalistic lifestyle and um yeah, focusing on the things you really need and that you really like mm-hmm. and not spending too much money on buying stuff and um we really loved the idea and planned to to build a tiny house once we were back in germany and um but we at the same point we kind of started like looking up all the things that you need to know um if you want to build a house and because we only spoke and dreamed about it but never been in one we kind of contacted this um a building company that we found that tiny house building company tiny house building company that we found which had and they had really really nice tiny house so we said oh can we visit you and they said yeah of course and then we had the other idea and said okay right now we're pretty much skipping turkey um we don't have to be in in germany like super quickly and um, we still have a bit of time so um would it be an option to build our tiny house just just with them kind of because that's something that you can do in Germany with some builders that you kind of rent a building place for a tiny house and you get you get some support you use their machineries you get the material for them from them and especially if you have no clue what you're doing I think it's a pretty good idea and so in the end they said yes so that's what we're doing here right now for the last two and a half weeks we've been building our lovely little house and now we have some the outer frame and some inside walls and we've painted and we have floor a floor in there and tomorrow morning we'll keep going and probably put some insulation on our house oh that's really wild and how big is your house it's um so you have to follow the regulations and in germany it's pretty strict so the houses but when you build it on a trailer which we're doing mm-hmm. um it has a maximum width of 255, a maximum height of 4 meters, and we decided to make a length of 7 meters and 80. Okay, and so what is that? That's 18 square meters. 18 square meters, okay. Pretty much. And is it multi, like, well, I know it can only be 4 meters high, but is it, a, there's a second floor, so where the sleeping bed is and all that stuff, or how does it yeah, work? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's a typical, like... The classic. The classic sleeping loft is in in the, like, yeah, under the roof. Ah, uh, so wild. I wonder if they make them, like, is that for transportation regulations, that these, these measurements? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, um... The idea with these regulations is actually these dimensions and maximum of 3.5 tons of weight. And the idea behind that is um, that you can still register it um, as like a camping trailer, caravan, or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's just the maximum dimensions for for those. So okay. if you want to make it easy, actually moving it on the road without any special permits um, it is the easiest to stay within like 
these dimensions mm -hmm. in, in that weight, and then you can register it as a, yeah as a camping trailer or caravan, and you can easily tow it um, without any special permits. If you go um, like taller or wider or heavier, you always have to get a special permit every time you want to move it. Yeah, anywhere. and you and you'll need a lead car, and you might need uh, like exactly. that wide all load sign and all these things. Yeah, that makes yeah. so much sense. Exactly. So. Yeah. Do you mind talking about the cost of building your small house just for interest of people? Yeah, um, we had a bit of a comparison of what people spend building their own houses in Germany and they spend around, if they build the whole outer shell with everything, something around 25,000 euros, a bit more or less. And when you start getting something from a tiny house builder, something the size that we wanted, you start with the outer shell, something like 30,000 plus, probably more. Okay. And what we'll be <clears throat> ending up paying for the outer shell here is 28,000 euros, um, which includes the full outer shell, insulation, everything, electricity is done, all the plumbing is done, um, water boiler, floor heating, yeah, I think I think that's about it. And we at home with our with help of the parents and the family and friends, we'll do the whole interior, so furniture. Um, the the last bit that is left, okay. um, we'll we'll be doing at home. And I guess it makes more sense to tra transport it first because then, like, if you have drywall, maybe it cracks or things like that. Or maybe you don't use drywall. I don't know what you use inside. No, it's uh, it's plywood. It's Walls are all made of plywood. Okay. Um, the whole the whole transportation would be possible also if it's like completed. But we just said we have we want to be back in Germany by middle of November. So. Um, with skipping Turkey and saving some time, we kind of gave ourselves a month, and that is a time slot where we can like build the outer shell, so the house can stand outside. It's waterproof, and we can put it anywhere, and then just take our time to build the interior. Right, that was you don't have the to whole idea. Where, uh, where are you? Where are you from in Germany, and where are you going to put the house? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, we, we, have... we put it. We are from Bavaria, near Nuremberg, a mm -hmm. town called Erlangen in Franconia. So that's the easy part. The hard part is where we're going to put it because we don't really know where we're going to put it yet. Okay. So the plan was to to be close to home, but as we both have to find jobs as well, the the plan is to first find a find a place where we just can put it for now, the house, mm -hmm. and then just organize everything once we're back. Oh, okay, good. So you don't know where you're moving to. First things first, you have to find jobs, yeah? Yeah, no, not 100%. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, it'll depend on, I mean, going back to my own, to my old university town would be nice because I know some people maybe find a job there. But then again, if we find a job somewhere else, that's the beauty of a tiny house on wheels. We'll be able to pretty much go wherever we want with it. Mm -hmm. So we're quite flexible and... Yeah, we, we'll figure it out once once we're there, I guess. What's the legalities with uh, regards to, like, can you put it just in somebody's driveway and then hook up an electricity to it, or how does that work? Um, in Germany, um, as the Germans yeah, love their bureaucracy a lot, um, it's a bit difficult to even, even to just have, like, um, a piece of land and just put your house on it. Um, because usually they, as you register them as 
as caravans or camper trailers, they you can't really have them as permanent residency. And so there's no official regulation because they are not caravans as that. They are full fully fledged houses. You can live in them all year round, even in winter and everything. So every um every area um they um they just have to decide on the way they handle these situations. If you can just have a piece of land, put it there and have your permanent residency there. And if there's no regulation yet, maybe you have to figure it out with them. So it's a bit... But it's, it's basically the once you put the house on the land, it's, it's handled as a normal house as well. So you need to organize everything. To organize if you would build a house there. But it's so many things that are not like... Um, like regulated. regulated in general, so that's so many things that makes it a bit complicated. Okay, how would you say? I mean, well, I can say one way you've changed in these past three years, and that's building a tiny house and being minimalist. But how else? How else have you guys changed? Um, I actually think we changed in a lot of ways. I uh, first of all, I will first of all, I would have never thought that um, we would learn and get so many different points of views and experiences during this trip. First, it was more like a, probably I thought it would be more like a long holiday, but it's really, that's the different to travel, difference to traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in general, we got out of a lot of standard um, social expectations that you probably grow up with in the Western world or in, in Germany in general. Um, because we we spend so many evenings with in families who live completely different, yeah. So that was definitely an eye opener. And um, what options you actually have? That you don't only have to uh, have good grades, go to un- university, and then you have to find a job, and you have to buy a house and two cars, and like the the way that life is supposed to be like the the standard straightforward way of living that probably the generation of our parents was used to having and the whole thing with job security that's not really a thing anymore yeah. and li- life is just very different to what our parents were raised to to know and to live so the way we were taught i think is not very up to date but in germany a lot of people still think and live that way and even a lot of our friends they were all like oh you're living a dream doing this trip and we're like mate you can do the same like if you if you're willing to save some money and maybe you have to go to australia first work there for a while to earn some money for traveling but you you have to give up some comfort you can't buy a new car you can't live a fancy lifestyle for a while but if you want to go travel nothing keeps you from from doing it like you have you have a european passport you can go wherever you want and you just have to take that step and take that risk of leaving the standard path and taking that risk of not having a very straightforward and linear cv and all these kind of things and mm-hmm. i think that's definitely one big thing that this trip taught us is the freedom we experienced on this trip that you can change your mind every day and that you can choose the paths you want to go every day again and just do the things you you think are the best ones in this moment. Um, 
that's not something that you can only do on a on a trip like this. This this is actually the freedom you can you you can live like any time. Also, when we can go, go home, we we can also have this freedom. We don't have to follow any structure or something. We can we can make decisions and change them every day again. Of course, you have a bit more responsibility, but also on this trip, we we have to look for okay, how much water, how much food do we have? So you still, of course, have to be a responsible basic. But I think this awareness of this freedom is something that many people don't know and that's definitely something we learned. I love it. Has there been any other bike tourists that have uh, really helped you or influenced you along the way? I think definitely this time with, with Daniel in, in Central Asia over the Palmy Highway was um, was definitely influential. Influential, yeah. I think after this these six weeks, Jonas definitely was like, okay, we carry too much stuff. I was always pretty happy with what we have. Mm -hmm. I know some part, some things are luxury, but I think on a longer trip you want to have some things that you might not need every day, but that you enjoy every now and then. But he was like, look at him. He's like carrying like nothing compared to us. So we could travel think, with I less. I think this whole setup is like 30 kilos, bike plus gear. Oh, wow. So, yeah. so he said if you travel with a little bit less and we could get rid of a few things, then you can enjoy some smaller roads or whatever a bit better and use them and so just the way of like a different way of cycle traveling mm -hmm. kind of definitely experience um, influenced us uh what's next for you so you're going back to germany and then hunting for jobs or i'm afraid so <laughs> yeah so <laughs> the plan is to be back in germany in the middle of november so we um, just thought about the, the route that we're going to take um, through you now Romania, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, and Czech Republic. Next year, we're definitely going to look for jobs and then look for a place to put our tiny house. And But, but the good thing is we're really excited about it. I think um, it's, it's really something so many people say, oh, my God, traveling is so amazing. And it is amazing. It is great. But... At the same point, you you still don't have everything. You still need, I think, we, we experience, you still want to have the balance between, let's say, normal life and travel life because there are so many things that you can't have when you're on the road. We just, we're just really excited to, to kind of build something up, like have a garden or this house or um, meeting up with the friends and family. There are so many things that happen, family... Um, celebrations like his brother got a baby and we weren't there and so many things where you yeah. can't be with them and where you can't really um, build something up yourself for example and so that's something we're really excited for and really looking for yeah and I think um, by doing what you're doing you know you got the tiny house and maybe you'll get a little tiny car to go with it um, you can minimize the costs and save for future travels right it's future oh yeah definitely that's, that's definitely one one idea about it yeah yeah my wife and I were really lucky because her new job starting tomorrow is on my way to work so I'm just gonna drop her off and pick her up after and we don't have to go that route of getting a second car and dishing Perfect. out that's thousands of dollars on a, you know, just another vehicle. And exactly. Yeah. Oh, no, that's super handy. That's perfect. If people want to learn more about your tour and follow you, where can they find you? 
Yeah, our website is uh, only O-N-I dash on dash adventure dot de. Our social media, like Onion Adventure, just just like the vegetable and adventure. And yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to drop us a message or yeah. It's also everything in English, English even though our website is DE, it's everything in English, also on Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. And yeah. I will put links into my website as well so people can follow you and find you. Veronica, Jonas, thank you again for recording this with me today. I wish you both the best and uh, good luck with your upcoming life in Germany and keep on pedaling. Thank you so much. It's been really, a great pleasure. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Really interesting. Have a good one. You too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Veronica and Jonas and, of course, Droney. As for next week's episode, I'm not quite sure if it's going to happen in time, so it might be one or two weeks before the next episode comes out. Such is life when I'm interacting and trying to communicate with people who are out on the road, biking, cycling, etc. And it's okay. That's fine with me. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using. It helps me recognize how many people are listening to it and helps with my stats and just to know that uh, people are enjoying it. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can check out my website at www.biketouradventures.com or you could email me at info at biketouradventures.com. Thanks again for listening and keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.